Mac Power Users, episode 395, The Feedback Show. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you today, Katie? I'm well, David. How are you? Excellent. And we have a lot of feedback. Uh, here in the outline for us this day. And uh, we thought we'd put it up to today because the next couple of weeks, Apple's got some announcements and new operating systems are releasing. We wanted to, to take care of this feedback while we can. So we're we're clearing the decks. Yes, we are. It's going to be exciting the next couple episodes. We anticipate a, a, a busy few episodes. I tell you, I'm, I'm a little nervous because as we record this episode, um, we've got, what is it? Irma is uh, kind of barreling down. I, I don't know what's going to happen the next couple of days. So um, yeah. Yeah, you're right in the path. I will be able to partake in those announcements. Uh, if 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 I don't talk to you guys next week, um, think good thoughts. But uh, which which led us to the thought that you know it might be time to revisit that disaster preparedness show. Perhaps the time to do that would have been about a month ago, uh, before <laughs> before Harvey and before Arma. But for those of you who um, have lived through. Uh, some disasters, whether that be weather or fire. I know our David, the folks out in California are dealing with a lot of fire related issues now. Um, send us some feedback. Let us know what worked, what didn't, what were the lessons learned? Uh, what what could have been done differently? What do you wish you had known? What should we tell people? What should we talk about? And um, that that's something that we'll, we'll cover more in depth and probably after we get through all the big Apple announcements here. So so maybe in September, early October. But you can send that to uh, feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. And uh, hopefully I won't have any tales of woe to share with you. Um, hopefully it'll be a much to do about nothing. But uh, But we'll see. I might have my own comments to add. Yeah, well, we do have a little bit of that in this episode, but we're going to hold that for a few minutes. We're going to tease you with that. Because first thing, we have a guest with us today. Welcome back to the show, Victor Medina. Hey, thanks, David. Thanks for having me on, Katie. Um, so, Victor, we know you very well as uh, being the uh, commander-in-chief behind MacTrack Legal, formerly known as, as MiloFest. Um, and we're coming up on that a little bit later in October. That's coming up um I believe October 19th through 21st down in Orlando at the the Disney Yacht Club. And I'm looking forward to joining you again this year down there. So we wanted to make sure our listeners were aware of that. And we'll let you talk about it a little bit. But today, I wanted to have you on because we just talked to Dan Morin last episode about his experience of writing a novel. Uh, You actually just gave a really great presentation uh, about writing a book for uh, a nonfiction book kind of for the purposes of promoting your business. And I thought that might kind of be a good bookend, so to speak, to the novel writing episode. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah, bookend. Did Very you nice. see what I did there? I've been I've been thinking about that all day. I, I bet you were. <laughs> so I uh, was hoping you could you could kind of um, to, to share with us a little bit about uh, what you've done. You, you've now written two books, I believe, um, and, and kind of tell us a little bit about why you did it and, and how you did it. So, um Tell us a little bit. Uh, let, let's let's start a, a little overview about who you are and and what you do, and then kind of what possessed you to write a book. Sure, no problem. Well, you know, I'm based out of New Jersey. Uh, I am an attorney uh, by most of my career, you know, training and, and practice. 
focusing in estate planning and elder law, much like you do, Katie. And I've run my practice for about 10 years. About four years ago, I started getting into financial services for my estate planning clients. So we kind of offer a uh, suite of those services, a whole spectrum uh, for them. And I wrote the book as a way of sort of translating the experience that I had, kind of like a... um, it's like a Rosetta Stone. I wanted them to be able to see me as competent in both areas. And I thought, well, if I wrote a book, maybe that would help. Because I've always really been interested in this intersection between what folks like Seth Godin and Merlin Mann will will talk about how they create something. And you say to the world, here, I've created this. Do you like it? You know, and you, they put it out there. I've always been interested in the intersection of that and how you actually communicate do you like it? And so it doesn't matter to me whether or not someone is looking to promote professional services or talk about uh, why you need to do plumbing on a proactive basis, but there is a communication aspect of our philosophy of what we do. And getting that out in the world is one of these obligations that we have if we're really passionate about what we do. So I love the medium of of books. I know David's written a whole bunch of them. Um, And over the time, I think that the barrier to entry to self-publishing has made it so that you can, you know, get a book out there really quite easily, you know, with very little upfront expense. And there's also something about writing a book that gives you a, a certain level of credibility, a certain, and it, I know that you mentioned, you know, you're actually using this book both as a, a marketing and a promotion tool as well to, to say, hey, you know, look, I, I know what I'm talking about here. I, here's my book. Yeah, it, it is a great business card. It is the uh, most effective uh, $2.12 business card that I've ever used because I had a book launch um, for the second book and I invited clients to come in. And the number one question, the question that everybody asked was, well, how did you do it? They're fascinated by this idea because we all have these ideas. They, we all have these things that we want to communicate. You're at a cocktail party, you're having a conversation, you always run into the person that knows something that they have to tell you about, right? And you're kind of painted in the corner with them. So we all have these ideas, but the act of actually getting them down into something physical like a book that you can hand to somebody is awe-inspiring for the majority of the population. And I think with rightfully so. I mean, it does take work to get this done. And so when you have that credential where you've written a book and you can you can physically put it in somebody's hands, it now puts you in a different light to them. And so we've used them to book speaking engagements. We've used them as giveaways for groups where we're going to do kind of group talks. We use it as an introductory sort of pre-education for potential clients. And we send one out with a packet to sort of say, here's who we are. And uh, it's a great self-selection tool. I mean, not everybody is perfect for my business or anybody else that's listening. You're going to want an ideal client. And and these types of uh, tools, which help kind of illuminate who you are, the philosophy behind what you do, are a great way to get those people self-select. And it makes your job a lot easier when they actually do come in. So how do you figure out, so we kind of get the idea of of why this might be a good idea. How do you actually come to, what are you going to put in a book? I mean, yeah, I I think big picture, that'd be a good idea. It'd be nice to write a book one day. I'm I'm sure many people are thinking, yeah, that'd be nice, but I I don't know. I, I don't know what I'd say in it. Yeah. 
we started a couple of things. I, I wrote the two books two different ways, and I and I find it interesting that they were both successful. Um, but the it, it, successful in the sense they got it done. I, we're not retiring on book money over at the Medina household. Not putting the kids through college on that stuff. But uh, they both worked. One of them was really a collection of frequently asked questions. When we're in a position of explaining what we do to somebody else, we're probably saying some of the same things over and over again. So if you kind of just stop and pay attention to that, if you just put your listening cap on to say like, oh, I've said this more than once, and you just get aware about that, you can start to capture that, right? And so we actually put in uh, in the kind of main meeting area of our office an, uh, an empty but clean pretzel jar. Uh, and so we put all of the frequently asked questions in there and we were able to draw those out and be like, you know what, this is stuff people want to know. And that's one method of doing it. We have other listeners. I know you you have listeners who are very um, into blogging, right? And so people have already published many little books, four or five paragraphs at a time. Well, we can aggregate those and with a good copy editor or taking some time on your own, you can put those into a book. Um, and then the other way that I wrote the other book from it is I actually, um, I had a long drive. So I, I, I hit all three things on the geek card. Um, you know, I'm way into Mac stuff. and But another one of those is I'm into adult co-ed acapella which is way geeky. Um, and I had about a five-hour drive from a convention of other acapella peoples, all-day acapella. And uh, I had an old recorder. And it was a five-hour drive. And I just I gave my presentation. I just sort of dictated into that. And they have some great services now that don't charge you by the word, which saves me money because I speak very quickly. And they charge you by the amount of time in the recording. And you can just send it off to be transcribed. Um, the one that I use is called Casting Words. And you upload the file. It, it reads how long it is. It says it's going to be 30 minutes, going to be 30 bucks to get it done. And you're out the door. So it's, it's typically more cost effective to getting transcriptions done. Yeah, so much about writing a book is getting the ugly first draft done. And I think so many people get hung up on that. They try to be so precious with that first draft. And uh, I always tell people, you just get get the words down. You can always fix them later. But just getting the initial set of words down is half the battle. Maybe more. Totally true, David. I just had a conversation with my 13-year-old about to enter eighth grade, and we were having a candid conversation about what he was going to do in eighth grade and, you know, what was coming up for him. And he's like, I have a really hard time writing. I can't, can't, can't get started. I was like, you and the rest of the population. So I said, okay, we're going to write a first sentence. And the first sentence is going to read, this is my first sentence on X topic. And then you're going to keep writing after that, just so we can get the stuff down. And then we can edit and clean it up later. So when you say you gave your presentation to the the audio recorder, so you have like a, a spiel, for lack of a better word, that, that you kind of give to people, uh, you know, you give talks or things like that. Is that is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, I, I have a regular sort of presentation that I, I give, you know, one that I can do kind of off the cuff at any time, just because I've given it so often. And it's really a distillation of my philosophy of planning, but the things that I think are important for people to know. So I'm kind of talking about this more obtusely, because I know that your audience is wider than professional services or lawyers and things like that. But there's a thing that I believe that we do, you know, there's a conversation that I have with the people that I meet that says to them, this is who I am. In 
this is what we can do to help. And I've given that in public seminars. I do that one-on-one when people come in and we hit some of these highlights over and over again. So going through that kind of a discussion and get capturing that, because we, we do it so often, sometimes we think reflexively about it as opposed to deliberately. But actually going down and, and recording that was a way of capturing the thing that was, what's it like to work with me and my law firm? And that turned into 108 pages of a book at the end of it because we were able to fill all of that just in the in the time talking about what we do and why we do it. But but your point is still very valid to any industry. Most of us have a spiel that we give, whether it's it's or we have something that we can recycle, whether it's a presentation we gave at a convention or a conference um, or like you said, it's just the, the frequently asked questions that we give to every single client or customer that we get, you know, th- those are things that are all ripe for post on your blog or or ripe for, you know, ripe for a book, you know, ter- take those and elaborate on them and turn them into a book. Yeah, and if we want to tie this into like the the Mac Power users like ninja move on it, you know, that stuff that you've been collecting as your text expander snippets, you know, that are how you explain something that can be the basis of where you start that conversation because it's the stuff that you believe that you tell people over and over again. So you've you've got these segments. You've you've got this whole chunk on the recorder that you sent to Casting Words and and had it transcribed. You know you've got all these you know years worth of of blog posts. You, so you just started gathering up all of this content. Uh, what did you do with it? So after it was done, I actually um, uh, put it together in a format um, that I could submit to um, a, a, in a. Amazon subsidiary called CreateSpace. And so part of the obstacle to publishing a book in the past has been you needed somebody to front the money, a publisher that was going to, you know, either take a a portion of the proceeds in which they had to make sure that you were actually going to sell something or or they had to front uh, kind of the production cost of it. And, you know, recoup that before they would give you anything on the leftover. So generally speaking, that's gone away because a lot of these services are print on demand. So if you can start to kind of put that together into a format, and uh, the reason I know it's 108 pages is because Amazon or CreateSpace charges me $2.12 for 108 pages and then $2.15 for 109 pages. But two twelve is what I pay from 0 to 108. So I'm going to use 108 all the way up to the edge. And you can put that together and submit it, and then they will kind of put it together. But using copy editing, and you know, uh, you can bring a copy editor out from the outside, or you can go ahead and attack this stuff so that it it says what you wanted to say. But in the end, you've got a PDF file, and that PDF file gets uploaded. Uh, the Create Space just takes a look at it, make sure that it's formatted correctly. You can add images for a book cover or a back cover, and it will kind of walk you through all the system of having an ISBN, which will now get it listed in the Library of Congress, and then they start to take care of. All all of the things about putting it up on Amazon for purchase or configuring it for online uh, download, whether it's an iBook store or on Kindle, you know, being being available for for download those ways. But there's no barrier to entry. I mean, you create a CreateSpace account for zero dollars, and once it's up and uploaded, if you want to order one copy to be delivered to your place, so you can show off the one copy of your book, it's two dollars and twelve cents plus shipping. And it's that number, whether you order one copy or a thousand copies. So, you know, all the scales of efficiency have already been or economies of scale have all been built in to it because they're going to produce your book right next to somebody else's book. And they're all print on demand. It's fantastic. Yeah. So create, although you are the publisher because you own the book, you would, I'm assuming you maintain the copyright to the book. Um, create, yeah, create, that's right. create space 
kind of takes the place of what we would think the book publisher would do in terms of taking care of all the logistics of getting it put in the Amazon store, um, you know, helping you create the cover, helping you typeset and format it, or, or did you have to do that separately? I did it my own. I have a, a you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a Nancy when it comes to that stuff. You know, I like it to look a certain way. My fonts have to be a certain way, but they will have those services. I was going to say, you're you're on Mac Power users. We understand we're your people. <laughs> So you're my people, man. I got to make sure I got the right line and the thickness on the line, the way it's been configured. So I did most of that work, mostly out of a labor of love, because I did want it to look a certain way. And I care about my craft. I mean, you know, David had spoken a lot in blog posts about, you know, artisans and people who really care about the craftsmanship of what they're doing. So if you are that type of person, then you can spend the time to make this thing look the way you want it to look. I love my books. I mean, I don't mean that from an ego standpoint, but just I am very proud of the work that went into it because it, you know, it, it's reflected uh, out in the final product. And, and it's just a, a silly old 108 page book. It's not easy, brother. You did it. <laughs> did you did you work at all with an editor or someone to help you? Or did did, did Victor Medina pound out all these words and, um, you know, proofread them and typeset them and do all of that himself? Or did you have any help along the way? It's a little bit of both. Uh, and I think this is the way that it works for, for everyone. Uh, on one of the books, I had a heavy editor uh, assisting me with uh, sometimes filling um, the words on the page uh, and sometimes sort of uh, formatting and editing that stuff. And then other times they were just cleaning up what I was doing. And uh, I think it works both ways. If you're going to use an editor, obviously it's professional services. You're going to pay something for that uh, because they're professionals and they deserve to get paid for that work. And so I did pay uh, someone to to assist me with that. And it was sort of a flat fee. This is what they did is they they helped professionals like me write books so that they could be available to be used. Uh, and a great ghostwriter or copy editor or somebody that's in this will understand how to use your voice in what they're doing. They don't rewrite the book in their voice. If you picked up my book, it sounds like me. And it's not just because I filled every word on there, but because the editor helped make sure that it was consistent all the way all the way through. Uh, and then after that, I gave it to some trusted readers. I mean, I've got no better reader in my life than my dad. Um, and uh, I, my dad is forever helping me fix my writing. I am guilty of uh, using the pronoun there instead of it's uh, for corporations and other non-people entities. And he loves fixing that and letting me know about it. So, um, you know, I ran that through that washing machine a few times before I, I considered it to be done. Now that we've got a little bit of, of an idea of, of how that process took place, um, you know, tell us, how, how did it go? How did it work out for you? It was fantastic. I, I got very lucky in some sense because I published it and uh, I, I got it, a, a few copies sold. And so Amazon then listed it as like the number one estate planning book for about a minute and a half. <laughs> but that minute and a half coincided with a producer for a national TV show who did a search for estate planning. And, uh, you know, it came up. And then I got invited to be on on a on a guest spot on TV and got interviewed, just not just about the book, but as an estate planning expert. And so we've kind of rolled it out in in um, all of these kind of like a, a tentacle, in, in a set of tentacles, just kind of out there. Say, okay, we're going to use it to speak. We're going to use it to get promoted. We're going to use it for uh, brand stuff. And we used the two books to get me a radio show and a podcast that I have. Or it's the same thing, but we simulcast it as a podcast. It's on traditional radio. So those are those things that tune in frequencies and radio waves and, you know, 
which is what we use in a hurricane. Um, but <laughs> I tell people it's a radio show, and they're like, "What do you mean a radio show? We don't use that anymore." Yeah, I'm like, "What? What's going on? It's it's all my clients are like 80 years old. They still have radios. That's what they listen to. They don't know how to set up a podcast on iTunes." But we've been able to leverage this stuff right multiple times. Yeah, I've, I got the same problem with fax numbers. I've got a couple clients that yes. just insist on faxes, and it just kills me. And they ask you for your fax number, and you say to them, but it just ends up as a PDF in my email anyway. The crosses we bear. Yeah, right. But we've, nobody wants to hear about, yes, tough lives, lawyers, good dog with that. So anyway, we, we've used it in multiple, t- in multiple ways. And so if you ask me, like, in return on investment, thousands fold, right? We've gotten so many clients out of using that. Uh, I just got a story this morning from uh, one of my paralegals on my staff who was at a garden in Philadelphia and she's sitting down resting. She's a photographer. She's kind of resting there and she looks over and somebody's reading my book. I hope she took a picture. No, she didn't. She spoke with the person and she said, how, how did you, I work for that guy? You know, how did you get that? And it turns out that that book ended up in those people's hands because their daughter was an estate planning attorney for a firm in Philadelphia, far enough away from where we are. And she started Googling, you know, whatever she Googled and found the book, bought it for them and had it shipped to them. So we don't know how far this stuff spreads out when we kind of give it out to the world like that. So you're you're not necessarily publishing the book to make money and to make money off the book, but the book has has led to other avenues of business and, and other ways that it's that it's paying dividends for you. I think that's a fair way of saying it. I don't think I ever went into it expecting to um, make money back on the sales. Although Amazon does deliver a quarterly check uh, to my checking account of, for very small money, uh, $2, $9 at a time. So people do buy it and I do make some money off of it. I suppose over time it will recoup the costs uh, that are in there. And that's the nice thing thing about self-publishing, especially on the Amazon website, is that you actually don't have to front any inventory. So if somebody... I I find this fascinating. Um, You were talking before, Katie, about how you were using Prime to get something at your house within this time period. And you expect, well, that's a physical inventory. They're just going to bring it from a local warehouse. This book doesn't exist until you hit the buy button on Amazon. And in those 48 hours, they will print, bind, pack send and deliver to your home this one book. Uh, And I find that fascinating that they're able to do that in that time period because Amazon holds no inventory for me uh, for for what they, um, you know, for what you can buy. And so, yes, we make a little bit, but not really enough to call it the money-making adventure. We really use it as a way of sharing this information out. I think it's more of my like public service out there. Yes, there's there's value to me. It helps me grow my business and get clients. And those are all good things. I'm never going to um, help as many people as might read my book. And so if I'm able to do that, and if I'm able to do the radio show, whatever it is to help spread that information, it'll all come back to me. And I just figured that's a great activity to do is say, I really believe in this stuff. I think it would help you because this is not, I, won't, I should have been clear in the beginning. It's not a sales book, right? You don't read it where it's like a sales methodology like, oh, well, here's all these problems. And only if you call the Medina Law Group, can we fix them for you? I wanted it to stand on its own. You know, so when you read this book, it's full of suggestions, practical suggestions, you know, how interview tips for estate planning attorneys. Now, it's bent toward the things that I believe because I believe them strongly about what good estate planning looks like, what good financial planning and retirement looks like. So it's bent in those directions. But you can use this as a standalone um reference guide and get something out of it. And that was really important to me. I wanted to be proud of it to know that it's out there and not to be like, ah, it's a little slazy sales book that you got. No, it's really something substantial. 
Now, we first learned about this book at MacTrack Legal last year. You did a, a session on uh, how to write a book. Unfortunately, I missed that session because of Hurricane Matthew. I was actually gone that day. But um, you, um, I, I, everybody was talking about it on Saturday when I came back about this session. I think it was one of the um, landmark sessions of, of MacTrack Legal last year. So I thought maybe we, to take a minute to close, tell people a little bit about MacTrack Legal uh, that's coming up this year uh, and maybe some of the must-not-miss sessions that uh, that are coming up. Yeah, so MacTrack is uh, is actually going to be in its ninth year this year, and and I'm surprised by that number. That's it had legs for that long, and it's really been more about a a users conference um, for people, you know, who that it's a bent towards legal for sure. But the content in there it is very rarely just what lawyers can use. I think we did one session about opening and closing arguments. But, you know, David's been talking about productivity, and you've talked about tips and tricks on you know how to use your Mac better, and, and all those things would be valuable for anyone that wanted to use their stuff better. But it came out, the well, first of all, the whole idea of the conference came out from my desire to go to a conference and just one hadn't been put on. So I'm more of a fanboy attending my conference than I am, you know, a, a promoter uh, trying to put one on. And um, so because of that, I do the programming and I, and I try to make it interesting, at least something interesting I think that I would want to go to. And it turns out a few other people want to go to. And this year, uh, we've got a couple of sessions that I think are, are fabulous. I'm very proud that uh, my lead sort of team leader here, the person who's been with me the longest, is going to do a session on hiring and training your great team. And so when you kind of go out on your own, there's a limit about how much you can do. At some point in time, you're going to need other people to help you if you really kind of want to leverage how many people you're able to help and how big you can grow. And there's an art to that. And so she's going to give that perspective because she's been managing my team now for about seven years and has learned a lot from there. Uh, And then um, somebody that we all know, uh, another lawyer in in Naperville, Illinois named Mark Metzger is going to help us communicate by video. So, so much of where we're going with this, you look, you know, Instagram has got their 10 second, 30 second videos on there. It's less about, uh, you know, kind of like the written word as it is a combination about what you can see as well. So anything that we can do to help you communicate by video, and he's going to give you tips and tricks about what to buy and how to produce and what you can focus on, how to get it out there, how to promote it. And kind of really use that stuff as well. Um, and then we've got other sort of time-tested stuff. So automate your marketing. Um, you know, uh, Katie, you're doing a session on the uh, tips for more than novice, but not quite expert Mac user. I think we came. Is that the shortest title that we could come up with for your session? I, I, th- I think so. I'm, I'm really excited to see that session. I have no idea what that one's going to be about yet. I hear it's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. As long as there's no hurricane uh, on the day they're supposed to present, you're going to be there. I'm going to hold you down if you don't, if you try to leave to go check on your home. Um, so anyway, there's that session. It's just about tech stuff. And, and I've really kind of just tried to build um, this two and a half, three day session where people can go and learn from the speakers. But there's just as much time for people to share stuff with each other. Uh, because the community that uh, it attracts is one of the best that I've been around. I don't like most gatherings of lawyers, uh, my local bar association, I don't go to. Um, but this, the people who come here, they're cool, and they're helpful, and they're nice, 
and they want to see you do well and they want to share what they're doing and they're appreciative if they get something from you. I just love the crowd that comes and gathers here. And after nine years, there's some great friends and, and new friendships developing. So um, that's what's coming up this year. I, I think it's a fantastic uh, agenda. I don't say that just as the promoter, but you know, I write it out and I share it with the speakers, and you know, I get excited. I'm like, I want to go to all of these. I'm thankful that I'm not presenting anything important, you know, because I feel like I'd be taking up a slot from somebody who's really good. So I'm excited to go attend this one this year. All right. Well, Victor, thank you so much for for joining us and sharing with us. Why don't you um, tell people where they can find you, and then where they can find out more info about MacTrack Legal. Sure. So everything that I've done around the book and the radio show is all around this concept of making it last. You know, it dovetails well with estate planning and financial planning and the stuff that I'm doing. So if you Google generally make it last or make it last radio, you'll come across the podcast and the books. And if you want to take a look at what the end product looks like, feel free to to check that out. But if you're interested in the conference, which I think is really kind of going to um, sit well with most of the audience, um, you can find out more about it at mactracklegal.com. And so that's M-A-C-T-R-A-C-K-L-E-G-A-L. And you go there and there'll be the uh, the schedule and the speakers. And you can, if you want to register, absolutely go ahead. You can use the promo code MPU. We've kept that live. We, you know, we've really been appreciative of all the MPU lizard, uh, listeners that come in. And so, you know, there'll be a discount uh, for that. So if you want to come and register and it's October 19th to the 21st at Disney, there's nothing better between that and the food and wine festival. It's an awesome time. Think about coming. I said, well, thanks, Victor, and congratulations getting the book out and getting the conference going. Uh, it's real great seeing all the success you're having. Thanks, David. Thanks, Katie. Thank you both for having me on. Hey, and congratulations to the two of you. You know, this is episode 395. It speaks to both not only kind of your passion for what you're doing, but the fact that you've got skills and substance behind it. It's a great hallmark that you've gone this far. So you guys do a great service. It's my favorite podcast. Thanks for having me on. This episode of Mac Power Use is brought to you by Agile Bits. They are the makers of 1Password. And I want to talk to you a little bit about 1Password for Teams. You can learn more by heading over to onepassword.com slash MPU. So 1Password for Teams gives you full control over who has access to your team's most valuable information. So hopefully by now you have already come over to the 1Password bandwagon and you know the benefit of having strong, secure passwords across all of your various websites. And you know that using strong, secure passwords and having different passwords across all the various different websites is probably the best thing you can do to up your security game. But what about all the members of your team? What about all those people that you rely on at your office for security? You know, you are only as strong as your weakest link. Well, now you can share the simple of security of 1Password with everyone on your team. 1Password for Teams gives you tools that give you complete control to manage what you and your teammates can see and do. So you have access to an admin console, which allows you to instantly deploy, grant, and revoke access to shared vaults. And when your team members lose their 1Password, because, you know, it's going to happen, you can even securely recover a locked out user account. 1Password for Teams makes sure that your team stays productive and keeps everyone safe. Now, if you've ever had to manage a group of people, you know that sometimes making sure everyone's doing what they're supposed to do can be a full-time job. But now you can spend less time dealing with hacks and phishing attempts and lost passwords because you know that all of your team has got their, all of their passwords securely stored in 1Password, and only the people who need access to certain things have access to those things. So you can get your data everywhere. When you have access to 1Password for Teams, all of your teammates can store 
unlimited passwords, credit cards, secure notes, and more, and securely share those items with other team members, all while letting you have total control. So you can learn more by heading over to onepassword.com slash MPU. And thanks, OnePassword, for your continued support of Mac Power users. Katie, since we last talked in feedback, something has happened in the online backup space. There's been a great disturbance in the force. Yes, yes. Crash Plan is no more. Well, sort of no more. Uh, so Crash Plan is one of, I think, one of the most popular uh, online-based backup solutions. You pay them approximately five bucks a month, and they back up your your drive. And one of the things Crash Plan did was back up your network-detached storage to their online storage system. A lot of Mac Power users, especially, really liked Crash Plan because you could really get in a noodle with it. You know, you could back up to a friend. You could um, back up multiple computers. They had family plans. They they could do your network attached storage. But I, I think we found out that that's not a super sustainable model for them. Yeah, apparently the good, the good news is they backed up everything. The bad news is they weren't making any money, so they can't do that anymore. Uh, so they announced that they're uh, they're no longer supporting a consumer plan. They have a small business plan, which I think is around $10 a month. I don't know the exact price that will give you some of the features they had before, but essentially the price increased quite a bit. Um, if you really love Crash Plan, you need to look at that. I know they have a um, kind of an I'm sorry period where they're charging less for the next year, but eventually it's going to get up there to the $10 or so a month to back up through Crash Plan. Yeah, it's actually a really good deal for the next year, but but then then it does go up to the first to $10 a month. We got so much email for, on this from listeners not sure what they should do. Some people are big Crash Plan fans. And I get. I guess it really. Uh, the good news is you have lots of options. Uh, if you want to um, stick with Crash Plan, uh, there is an option available for you. It's more expensive, but there is an option. You aren't completely out of luck if you like Crash Plan, especially uh, that that ability to backup network attached storage for a lot of people. Uh, I actually gave up on Crash Plan. I used it for a while, and it was doing this weird thing where it was filling my hard drive with caches and literally just filling my drive, and I'd delete it. And it took me a long time to figure it out. So, uh, I don't know, two, three years ago, I switched over to Backblaze, one of the competitors, who has, I believe, occasionally uh, sponsored the show. It has been a long time since they did it, but they did used to sponsor us on occasion. Uh, but the um, but Backblaze is a um, is is a competing a competing service. Again, they have one of those five dollars you can back up all you want. Uh, but they don't they don't support network detached storage, and um, and that's not really a problem for me because I keep an attached drive with all my big archive stuff on it. And uh, I mean, like now you can go on Amazon and buy a six terabyte drive for a couple hundred bucks. Velcro that to the bottom of your desk, and then you can have essentially a lot of storage getting backed up to backblaze. Uh, but that's the one I've been using. Um, but that's not really the only option. Um, you can also use network attached storage with um, some of these services. Like there's a there's an app called Arc. I think it's ARQ. Uh, we have an ARC in the notes. So I think it's ARQ. I'll I'll confirm that. Um, and it it allows you to go ahead and back up straight to Amazon S3 or Backblaze B2. Backblaze has a competitor for Amazon S3, so you can kind of roll your own. Um, th there's actually quite a few options, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah, David, like you, I, I too switched to Backblaze a, a while ago. I was also having problems with the Java-based Crash Plan app. And I used Crash Plan for a while, but 
ultimately couldn't reconcile those problems. Um, I'm backing up both my home Mac and my work Mac to Backblaze, so I'm 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 paying them for for two installations every month. But um, the the way that I have gotten around the NAS problem is I just simply make a clone of the data on my NAS once a week to a a large USB hard drive that's that's always plugged into my Mac, and then that that hard drive gets backed up to Backblaze. So uh, I'm sure the folks at Backblaze maybe aren't thrilled necessarily with that, but but that's kind of been my workaround. And it's, it's been a good workaround for me because it means um, that I also have a local, a second backup, because, you know, I believe it, one is none and, and two is one, but I have a, a local backup of all that data on my NAS, which means that if I ever need it, if something happened in the NAS malfunctioned and I lost the data on my NAS, that that I would be able to to restore it directly and and a lot a lot faster than you know doing a cloud download or ordering a hard drive. Um, Backblaze B two. Yeah, I, was gonna say, I, I heard a lot of feedback from people on this because I wrote a post about it when all this went down. I think you did too. And uh, one of the things I did recommend was the idea of using Arc with Backblaze B2 or Amazon S3. And what I heard from a lot of people was that makes sense if you don't have a large backup. But uh, most people listening to this show are probably data hoarders like you and me. And they get quite expensive when you start looking at like the amount of data. I think I'm backing up something like five terabytes to uh, to Backblaze. And it would cost me a lot more than $5 a month to do it through one of these roll-your-own services. Yeah, and, and back, uh, B2 also has a storage calculator on it. So they, they look at things like how much are you backing up, how much of that is static, how much of that is new, how much are you downloading, and, and they'll give you an idea of what you're going to spend. But but most people are going to spend more than five bucks a month. You know, the, the other thing that's worth mentioning is is staying with CrashPlan. Um, CrashPlan will, um, first off, they've, they're honoring everybody's existing contracts. Then they are extending everybody's existing contracts as a courtesy for 60 days to allow you to find other options. So if you were like right up against your contract renewal period when this all came down, you, you've got 60 days to, to figure something else out. Um, and then if you want to move to the crash plan for, for business option, um, they're, they're giving you a significant discount on that for the first year, which is means you're probably going to end up spending, you know, a lot less the next year after your current plan ends than than you probably were before. Now, then of course the question is what's next after that? So you you can keep using Crash Plan if you want. Um, the problem is for people who are using it for family plans and those types of things that that might start to get more expensive. And and then it's just a cost benefit analysis. They're actually giving you a, a 75% discount for the next 12 months. So your your bill's probably going to go down. Yeah. So I guess you could you could just table it for a year and see what happens. Just stick with the crash plan at the discount for a year. I guess that's another option. Um, I, I do think uh, no matter which option you're using, you should have some sort of cloud based online backup. I'm a big fan of that. Uh, when we first started recording this show so many years ago, I wasn't entirely sold on those services because they were more expensive. They uh, took forever because of the, you know, the data processing, sending that data up, sending five terabytes to the internet takes a while. Uh, but, you know, seven, eight years ago when we started recording the show, it took even longer. Um, I have since switched my opinion on it. I think almost everybody should have one of these now. They're just not that expensive. Um, if it's $5 a month on Backblaze, you know, you pin, that's, that's as much as a lot of people spend every time they go to Starbucks. And it gives you a way to put your data somewhere other than your house. 
so if there is, you know, we've seen in the news, there's been flooding and there's, you know, all these problems, there's fires in California. Um, if your house goes up in flames or goes underwater, all those backups that you have in your house, the one you stuck to the bottom of your desk and all that stuff, they're going to get just as ruined as your computer. So having that online backup really gives you a uh, kind of a, a last resort recovery mechanism. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense to do it. If you're not doing it, I would strongly encourage you to consider it. And and the final point I want to make on this, the, the guys at ATP had two fairly decent discussions or two fairly lengthy discussions. They were, of course, excellent discussions uh, about this on their last two episodes. And a really good point that Marco Arment made um, that I think bears repeating is, you know, we are geeks. We are Mac Power users. There are ways that you can figure out how to cobble together an offsite backup solution of rotating hard drives or backing up to a buddy or sharing space on your NAS and, and doing those types of things. Um, sometimes as geeks, I think we spend more time and energy trying to figure out whether we can do something rather than figuring out whether we should do something. I, I would not mess with backing up my data, nor would I want to have somebody back up, nor would I want to be responsible for having someone back up their data to me. Um, you know, this is something that I think is probably for five bucks a month, best left to the professionals. And, um, I just, I don't want that kind of responsibility of being responsible for somebody else's data and nor do I want to have to worry about me being responsible for somebody else's data. Yeah. And, and just, I guess to pile onto that, uh, another thing you could do is to, to make yourself unresponsible is, is get your siblings or your parents or your friends, get them onto their own backblaze account and just explain to them the, the benefits of a next time you're at their house, say, give me your credit card. We're going to buy you a, you know, a belt and suspenders backup system. So I, I guess we've said enough about it. Let us know if you've got strong opinions either way, but there's a lot of options now. Sticking with crash plan is not off the table. Uh, Backblaze is great and rolling your own is good too. Although, like I said, I've received a lot of feedback since I did that post from listeners who said that's actually a bit more expensive than they expected. So, so maybe the, uh, the built-in systems like CrashPlan, Backblaze are the places to start. And I think that's because the people that listen to our show just have a lot of data. I mean, uh, Backblaze probably loses money on Katie and me, but they make money on all of the, you know, the normal users that don't back up very much. Yeah, I've got my parents and my grandparents backed up to Backblaze too, so they more than compensate. Yeah, there you go. All right, Robert wrote in, says, is the extra cost of the touch bar worth it? And uh, so he's getting ready to buy a new Mac. And on the 13-inch uh, MacBook Pro, uh, there is one with touch bar and one without. And the one without has a row of function keys like every Mac we've ever seen before. And uh, he can't make up his mind which one to get, whether he should spend the extra money for the touch bar. And uh, I, I would say that if the touch bar were the only difference you got with that increased price on that Mac, uh, it would not be worth it. You know, several hundred dollars. Um, the touch bar is nice. Uh, I I use it a little. <laughs> and I know a lot of people like Katie who hardly use it at all. Uh, so I'm not sure if it's worth it in that regard. But the problem is that upgraded Mac has a lot more than the touch bar. It has a, an additional two ports. It's got a faster processor. I mean, it's actually a better Mac in a lot of ways. So uh, I think when you're looking at the difference in price between those 13-inch MacBook Pros, Look beyond the touch bar and decide where you're at. Uh, two ports could be a huge problem for you, or maybe not. I'll tell you, I actually did a post on this fairly recently. 
right now, as I look at my computer, it's it's sitting up on a, a stand. I don't use the touch bar. I really couldn't use the touch bar right now. I'm using it with an external keyboard and mouse. But all four of my Thunderbolt ports are occupied. Yeah, um, I've I've got it plugged into a monitor. I've got it plugged into a USB hub. I've got it plugged into power. And then I've got it plugged into my Rode Podcaster as we're podcasting right now. Normally, when I'm not podcasting, three out of my four ports are are typically occupied. So if if I didn't have the touch bar model that had four ports, I would definitely have had to buy a dock to use it while I'm at my desk. And that, those docks now, you know, a really good Thunderbolt dock is is probably going to cost you about 300 bucks, which, you know, once you factor that in, plus all the dongles you're buying anyway, well, now you're getting really close to the the added price of of the touch bar. So, and, and then you factor in the things like the faster processor and, you know, other things and, and touch ID. I will tell you, I do use touch ID. You don't get touch ID if you don't have the touch bar. So I, I, I agree with you, David. I think you have to look at other factors beyond the touch bar, particularly how important is it for you to have more than two ports and what else are you going to have to buy if you don't? Every time I use my MacBook Pro and one password pops up or I'm installing software and I can just unlock it with my finger. It makes me smile. I to the. I mean, I've had the thing about a year now. It still makes me smile. It's just a, a great feature. I wish that was on every Mac. But um, as I understand the technology, it has to have that separate silicon in there to support the um, uh, the secure enclave. And if you get that, you might as well put the touch bar because it's really the processor to drive the touch bar as well. So uh, we're not going to get it across the board, at least in the immediate future. But But you're right that touch ID thing is super useful. And then I sit down at the iMac and it makes me mad when I can't use it. So uh, I don't know. Uh, I think another way to look at this is how you're using that MacBook. If it's your only Mac, I think it's unlikely it's going to work for you because of the problems Katie described. But if you're somebody who has an iMac, you do a lot of work sitting down, but you want one for the road. Um, the two port uh, touch bar less MacBook Pro is a very good option. Uh, next question comes from Kevin. He says, when do you buy Apple Care Plus and what do you buy it for? And this is a, a question that has changed a little bit because now you can get Apple Care Plus for your Macs. It used to be used to be there was just Apple Care that didn't cover accidental damage. Then you can get Apple Care Plus for your iOS devices, which include Apple accidental damage, but with an additional um uh, I guess deductible for lack of a better word. And now you can get Apple Care Plus on your Macs too. So where where do you draw the line, Katie? I will tell you, I, my general rule is I don't like extended warranties. You know, I, I just had to buy a refrigerator and I declined the extended warranty. That may or may not have been a mistake. My last refrigerator lost me 12 years, so we'll see. Um, as a general rule, I don't buy Apple Care on iPads anymore um, because just I have found that over the years, I, I have bought Apple Care more often than not. I've bought Apple Care enough times and not used it that I could have replaced an iPad and still come out ahead. Um, I tend to buy Apple Care on uh, my iPhones just because those those are much more prone to accidental damage, although I'm knocking on wood now. Um, I have never accidentally damaged an iPhone. But it would be a much bigger deal and, in my opinion, a lot easier to accidentally damage an iPhone. So I, I tend to buy it on Apple Care Plus on the iPhones just because I think of it as, as additional insurance, particularly if you're going to go without a case. Um, I know there are members of my family who use that Apple Care Plus on the iPhone all the time. The Macs, I, I, I sometimes do, I sometimes don't. 
I bought it on um, my MacBook Pro with the touch bar, partially because it was a laptop and partially because it was a brand new generation of a, of a laptop. I think a laptop is probably much more prone to damage, um, and particularly with these machines where really the only replacement you can do is to replace everything and they're so expensive. Um, I would probably think a little harder about doing it on an iMac, and I, I did not buy it on my Mac Mini. I'm kind of in the same place. I, I don't buy it on my iMac. I've never bought it for an iMac, and I've been fine. The um, With laptops, I feel like the laptops are so, um, I mean, everything is packed so tightly in those laptops. Uh, it just there's a lot of ways things can go wrong. I mean, there's a heat buildup. There's the battery issues. It just seems to me like that's a good uh, candidate if you want to be careful to buy uh, Apple Care Plus. I've, I've had, I've needed it twice on laptops over the years where I think it probably has paid for itself. Um, I don't buy it on iPads as well. I, I generally take pretty good of them, good care of them. But then when I think about how much I spent on this 10.5 inch iPad, if I managed to break it, I would feel pretty dumb for not having it. And on the, uh, the phones, I always get it because I just feel like phones get dropped. And then in my house, the phones get handed down. Even if I take really good care of it, after a year, it goes to my kids who apparently hate iPhones because they manage to break them all the time. And it's pretty nice. Uh, my wife's iPhone 6S, which my second daughter has, uh, had a couple cracks on the screen. I just took it in the other day because as we're getting close to getting new iPhones, I knew that that two-year warranty was about to expire. And it cost me $29 to have the glass replaced. Um, and they, and they, it was kind of nice when I went and they said, oh, there's an issue with the battery that we think was probably our fault. So we're putting a new battery in too. So it's like a new phone. Um, so I think it's worth it with a phone for certain, possibly with a laptop and probably not with an iMac. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Fracture, the photo decor company that's out to rescue your favorite images from the digital ether. To get your best pictures off your computer and on your walls, go to FractureMe.com slash podcast. And don't forget to mention Mac Power Users in their one question survey. Fracture has been a longtime sponsor of the Mac Power Users, and you've probably heard the ads before. With Fracture, you just need to log on to their website at FractureMe.com, upload some of your best digital photos, and then you get a box in the mail that's got that photo printed for you to hang on your wall. This isn't just any ordinary photo printing job, though. Fracture prints the photo directly onto glass, and then they add a laser-cut rigid backing so they're ready to display right out of the box. They even include the wall anchor. You just upload your digital photo, pick your size, and it's that simple. The fracture process makes the color and contrast of your photo really pop. And the sleek, frameless design lets your photo stand out while still matching any decorating style. Now, if you haven't tried this yet, you should. We're heading into the holiday season, and now is the best time to try fracture out. You can get an image made of your kids or your significant other and hang it on the wall for the holidays. We've actually bought fractures for different seasons, and it's a lot of fun changing the pictures out throughout the year. Fractures also make unique gifts, so you can give them to someone as we head into the holidays. We've even heard from listeners that are using Fractures in their business. All Fractures come with a 60-day happiness guarantee, so you're sure you'll love your order. Each Fracture is handmade in Gainesville, Florida from U.S. source materials in their carbon-neutral factory. 
Now, as I said at the beginning, you've probably heard these ads before, but if you haven't tried Fracture, now's the time. For years, I kept my best pictures on my computer, and since I started using Fracture, my whole family and everybody that visits my house has enjoyed the pictures a lot more than they were a little image on my computer. For more information, visit FractureMe.com slash podcast. You'll be surprised at how easy it is to get beautiful pictures printed through Fracture. Again, that's FractureMe.com slash podcast. And don't forget to mention Mac Power Users and their one-question survey. Thanks, Fracture, for supporting the Mac Power Users. Uh, we got a note from Richard that says, if I want to charge and listen to podcasts in my car at the same time on an iPhone 7 or newer, basically one that doesn't have uh, a standard 3.5 millimeter headphone jack anymore. He says, how do I do that? And um, so Richard's Richard's car has a three and a half millimeter headphone jack, but he doesn't have Bluetooth in his car. So that's kind of his problem is he can't charge and listen to audio at the same time. And that's not uncommon. So there, there are a couple of ways that you can solve this. Um, the, the way that I did it on my car, I'm not sure I'd recommend to people, but I basically had a custom system put into my car so that I, I went to a you know custom sound system place and, and they found a piece that matched my car and, and installed a Bluetooth module and a, and a 3.5 millimeter module. So I can, I can do all that now. But that was, that was very expensive. So I would only say do that if you plan on keeping the car for a really long time or or you you want to do something like that. Um, there are a lot less expensive options. Um, probably the first place that I would look um, is Belkin makes a product called the Belkin Rockstar. Uh, basically what that does is it's a lightning port splitter, for lack of a better word. It will take that one lightning port at the bottom of your phone, turn it into two, so then one can you can plug into charge. Uh, the other one you can then plug into that lightning to headphone adapter and then plug that into your car's aux output or input, and then I, I just leave it in the car, uh, and then you just have one thing that you connect to your iPhone when you're in the car. Uh, the other options are there are now some Bluetooth receivers that are fairly inexpensive. Uh, I'll put link in the show notes to one that is made by Anchor and one that is made by Aki, because those have gotten pretty good reviews and were recommended in our Facebook group. And what those will allow you to do is, um, you know, basically create a little mini Bluetooth receiver in, in your car. Um, so those are things to look at. It, it is hard. I mean, it seems like this stuff never works quite well as it should. Um, but you know, hopefully we'll get there. I, th I think there's something to be said for the proprietary ports going away. You know, now so often it used to be that, you know, that 30 pin dock connector everybody used, and then they built whole systems in their cars and now their devices don't work with them. Um, when that happened, you know, when all that stopped working, everybody got interested in Bluetooth and the Bluetooth technology gets better and better. So uh, theoretically, your device is going to the future. Even if Apple dumps the lightning port, it will still work. Well, assuming you have Bluetooth in your car, which I think most new cars bought going forward will, but but may not in the future. I, I'm, I tell you what, David, I have stopped buying USB chargers right now. Uh, and I'm in a holding pattern because I think that there's a chance that the uh, the next iPhone is not going to charge by USB. Yeah, we're going to talk about that at the end of the show. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying. I I, th I think I think that uh, just saying you might you might want to hold off if you're getting a new iPhone buying anything right now. All right, um, we got a lot of feedback on our must-have iOS utilities as well, and uh, just as expected, there was a couple apps we didn't talk about that a lot of people felt kind of passionate about. Just a few. Uh, well, some of them were uh, dealing with uh, like. Uh, 
utilities that were kind of out of the categories we talked about. We heard from Hero who likes Launch Bar, but you know that's really kind of a different category for us. <laughs> we didn't we intentionally didn't go there. Um, but Yoink is uh, is one we didn't mention, and it's it's a drag and drop type of application, very similar to uh, the Drop Zone app that I recommended. I used to use Yoink. Um, we heard from people who use Arc. ARQ, the app that we talked about at the top of the show. Um, another one that got uh, several people uh, wrote in about was AstroPad. Um, AstroPad's an app that allows you to use your iPad Pro as a drawing tablet. So you put it next to your, your Mac and you can draw on it with your Apple Pencil and it's just like having your own drawing tablet, which is kind of nice. Um, have you ever played with that app? I haven't, no. Remember, I don't even have a pencil anymore. That's right, that's right. I installed it and played around with it. It's nice, like, if you need to sign things that you can just do it quickly on your iPad. Um, if you have a very occasional need of a drawing pad, I think it's a great idea. I think if you're an artist, you're probably going to want something a little more professional. I mean, some of the, the new drawing pads made by the companies that specialize in it have textures and, and things that you're not going to get with AstroPad. Um, AstroPad does, by the way, that's the same company that has that really cool um, dongle that's on Kickstarter right now. Although we probably shouldn't talk about Kickstarter hardware until it actually ships. That's usually probably a good idea. Yeah, we've been burned a few times. Uh, we got recommendations for Boom 3, which is a great uh, application if you are using um, if you're using audio on your laptop. It makes it louder and uh, pretty, pretty crisp. I remember when those guys had Boom 1 at uh, Macworld years ago. A couple of little developers came up with this idea and they've evolved it now for several years. Um, uh, another one we heard about was World Clock Pro. Um, World Clock Pro is like a um, time clock for your Mac that's almost a professional level tool. It's got sliders where you can like schedule meetings. And like if you work with a lot of people in different time zones, it's really good for that. Um, uh, any of the others that uh, stand out for you, Katie? No, I think we we covered a lot. We had a lot of feedback on the, you know, if we if we mentioned everything that we got people that people wrote in with, uh, we we would have an entire another show on iOS and Mac utilities. So I would just encourage people to follow up in the Facebook group because that's a great place to continue to share those great utilities. Uh, we also heard from Tim about VNC. You want to talk about that? Yeah, Tim wrote in uh, just again with some suggestions about um, using different VNC apps, uh, particularly Jump Desktop. You know, we talked about the Screens app, but Tim says that Jump Desktop supports uh, both the Citrix X1 Bluetooth mouse, which is 60 bucks, and the SwiftPoint GT ergonomic mouse. So this is basically a way that if you combine a Bluetooth mouse along with either the smart keyboard or a Bluetooth keyboard, um, you're kind of turning your iPad into an interface for a Mac or potentially even a PC, if that's something that you want to do. So for people who need to work on a Mac or need to work on a PC, but want to take their iPad and carry it around with them, uh, this, this could be the solution for you. Yeah, back when I was working for the man, uh, the the security protocols at my office would not allow screens through, but I could use Jump Desktop to get onto a um, to a PC at the office. It's a, it's a powerful app. So we got some um, feedback on our tagging with Terpstra show. Um, James wrote in and said that. Um, He's he's had some issues with with tagging for things that are part of a shared Dropbox folder. And, you know, tagging has has not quite 
you know, we, we still have some issues with tagging, especially when it comes to using third-party apps or when it comes to sharing and syncing that metadata across other services. Yeah, we should have even mentioned this earlier when we were talking about online backup services. A lot of those are not very good at supporting metadata. So there's a chance you lose tagging data when you stick something in the cloud as well. Um, in James's case, he is sharing a folder with somebody else and he wants to apply tags, but he didn't want it to screw up the workflows of the other people using the same files. And so assuming he can get the tags to work across Dropbox, um, he was looking for a system to ignore tags within a given folder. And I think the best way to do that would be some sort of scenario where you you add like a negative tag, like a, an ignore tag. And then you could build your tagging rules as saying, if it includes the ignore tag, then don't include it in the smart folder. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Kind of like a negative uh, rule to, to knock those out. I don't know if I described it. I think I might have jumped the the jump the line a little bit. So, so his problem is if I'm in a folder and somebody has tags and I have tags, how do I, how do I make rules that allow me to see mine without theirs? And, uh, so my, my solution was, uh, come up with a tag to either ignore his or your own special tag that filters yours into the system. So you only see yours. Well, to that, to do that, you're still going to see them when you're in the, the native folder, but you're then, I guess you could set up some smart folders to only see things that have certain tags. I, I don't know. This 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 all seems like a whole lot of work for not a whole lot of feed, uh, payback for me. Yeah, well, you know, we talked about it on this show. We did a whole show on it, so go back and listen if you have questions. But I still find tagging uh, pretty easy to implement and pretty useful for, like, a lot of my Hazel rules. I've switched a lot of them over to tagging rules because it's just easier to do that. Um, and um, I, I still think there's some benefit there. Yeah, but but maybe not so much in a shared work environment. Um, and, you know, as you were mentioning, tags may not always get synced and they may not always get backed up. So if if you're working in a very tag rich environment and your tags are super important, y- you want to make sure that the backup service that you're using is is backing up and will restore all that data as well. Uh, I talked in that show about I wasn't sure how to tag multiple files in iOS 11 and um since we recorded the show, or even maybe just, I just didn't know at the time Martin wrote in, he says, uh, use the select button to select multiple files and then open the share sheet where you can uh, tag the multiple files in one step there. They've got it covered in iOS 11. Boy, there's so many problems with iOS 11. Uh, I'm sorry, there's so many problems with iOS that have been solved with iOS 11 for multiple files. That That's something I'm really looking forward to talking about when we get to iOS 11 uh, next week. We got a little feedback from Jimmy on our Mac-based small business show um, about sending an email at a later time. Uh, he says both Newton and Airmail have a sending email later feature that will work on the server side so you don't have to keep your Mac running. Uh, but there are a couple of downsides to each of the client. Um, Newton does send later for all email services, but it requires a subscription. Uh, Airmail doesn't require a subscription, but it only does send later for Gmail and Exchange accounts. So those are things to be mindful for. Uh, we also had a lot of people write in and talk about Boomerang, which is a service specifically for Google. Uh, they'll give you so many send laters for free on the server side, but then you do have to pay for a subscription. And that can get a little expensive, particularly if you're a Google Apps user, or I think it's called G Suite now. I still tend to use, um, uh, I think it's a mail act on, which has the ability to send emails later. 
But the thing to know about that is you've got to keep mail on and it's got to be running in the background. I found it will work if my Mac sleeps or if my Mac is locked. Uh, thanks to the, is it called catnap feature? That's what I want to call it, but I don't think that's it. It's, it's power nap. It's power nap. It catnap would make more sense if we were still on our, um, on our, um, our cat theme with the operating system. They should have called it that when it was. There we go. Uh, but it will work with the power nap feature, but you can find that the messages are delayed. They don't always send because they won't send until the Mac, you know, power naps awake or does its power nap thing to whatever it is. All that stuff. If it's something that absolutely has to get out at a certain time and you want to time delay it, I would almost set an alarm or a reminder or something. Um, but the, uh, but you know, if you if you're on Google, the cloud-based email systems support it. If you're on, you know, IMAP, you want you may want to have a Mac running at all times. Like if it's super important, leave the lid open on your Mac overnight. You know, or if you've got an iMac, then that solves it as well. But even then, um, I don't think these services are entirely consistent. I don't I don't know that if you say send it at seven thirty a.m., it's going to always go out exactly at seven thirty a.m. I don't trust them that much, Katie. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Gazelle, the trusted online marketplace for selling used electronics. So, are you looking to upgrade to the new iPhone this fall? I think I kind of am. Well, Gazelle has you covered with not only affordable, gently used personal devices, but also the best value for your current phone. This special offer lock event is happening now, and it's exactly what you need to make a confident decision on your next iPhone. So go to gazelle.com, that's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com, to create a customized offer and lock in the value of your device today. And while you're there, check out their huge inventory of iPhones, iPads, Samsung phones, and more. So when you buy a device from Gazelle, devices are available in good, fair, and excellent condition. The good phones show just some gentle signs of wear and tear, but offers consumers great prices on great devices. All devices have been put through a rigorous 30-day inspection process, ensuring that they are in perfect working order. They're available for all of the major carriers, including AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint. And on all online offers are free, which means it costs you nothing to go online and simply find out what your gadget is worth. Just answer a few easy questions and get your instant price quote. So during this iPhone season, Gazelle will be extending their standard 30-day trade-in period so you can decide which iPhone suits you best without sacrificing the value of your current phone. Payments are made fast. You can either get a check in the mail or an Amazon gift card in your inbox or direct deposit to your PayPal account. I have used Gazelle before. In fact, my mother just had her first Gazelle experience by trading in an old 17-inch MacBook Pro and was quite pleased with the offer, the process, and how everything worked in general. So give new life to your used electronics, trade in for cash, or buy certified pre-owned by visiting gazelle.com, that's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com today, and please make sure to tell them that Mac Power users sent you. All right, um, we got some feedback on surge protectors, which uh, seems a little relevant now that we've had a bit of weather and are expecting more weather. This is mainly for you, David. Okay, well, can I just can I just say up front? Okay. I got so much grief the last time I made fun of surge protectors on this show. Uh, so I have gone to the Katie Floyd website and I've used her affiliate, Amazon affiliate link, and I've purchased two of these things. I bought the one you recommended. I don't even know what it's called, but it's now installed in my house. So everybody can stop sending me email about buying a power protector. Don't need, don't need to send that to me anymore. Okay. My public service is over. Now you can continue with Jim. 
Okay, so you have... Wait, I just want to make sure. You, you have a surge protector in place. I have two. I bought two. I put one on my iMac, my fancy iMac, with the various hard drives attached. And I put a second one in what I guess I will call my media closet, where I've got my routers and various plug-in devices for all my, you know, uh, Internet of Things home. So I, I've, I've got it both on the Internet and I've got it on the on the Mac. Do you have the right things plugged into the right side of the surge protector? Because, you know, usually only one side is battery backup and the other is just surge. Yes. Yes, I'm good. I'm good. And I have I even ran the Ethernet cable to my Mac. So now I have the additional control panel on my Mac, which is kind of fun, giving it instructions on what to do off the battery. You didn't tell me about that. I get extra. You mean the little it, it looks like an Ethernet plug on one end, but it goes to it goes to USB on your Mac. Yes, it's a um, you didn't tell me I get extra dials when I do this. That might have got me in the, the, the door sooner. Yeah, but I do want to give you a warning. Some surge protectors like the, the little APC things come with a Ethernet surge protection built in where you can like plug an Ethernet cable in and then it has like an in and out for Ethernet. Um, you want to be a little weary of those because some of those are capped off at 100 megabits. So yeah, I'm not using that. I'm so just I'm, I'm just saying if you've got one that you're using, I'm telling for the listeners if they have one that is used as part of they're like using that as their Ethernet surge suppression, they may unintentionally be slowing down everything that is down the line on their network. That's no fun. Yeah, the one that I put the link into the show notes is a dedicated Ethernet surge suppressor, and I believe it is gigabit. So if you're going to do Ethernet surge suppression, make sure you're at least using gigabit so you're not slowing everything down. Okay, so I didn't do any Ethernet surge suppression. So now you can fire up your email again and yell at me because I just did power. All right. Jim would like you to know that the most harmful thing to equipment is a brownout condition, which I know in California, you guys have those. A lot. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. We don't seem to have it where I live, but I don't care. I'm, I'm good. Oh, oh, this that's the other thing that happened. When I bought the surge protectors and installed them, I put a picture on Twitter. And then a whole bunch of people wrote me how I will never need it. And it was dumb for me to buy it. So that was great. I love I love all of you. Mm, yeah, they're wrong. And and so the brownout can actually be worse for power because that's when you get the inconsistencies. You know, Jim says um, there can be other causes for your power going out. Even if it doesn't rain where you are, even if you don't have lightning, you can have a car that hits a pole or the power company has issues or any of that. Um and uh, Jim mentioned that he lives in Key West, so they have over 100 miles of power lines just to get energy from the mainland. So there's always something going on with their power. And um, when he first moved there, that he um, put a voltmeter on the line, and then it fluctuated plus or minus 10 volts all the time. So yay. Okay, so I have a question for you, Katie Floyd. Okay. Um, uh, since you live in Florida, I expect you to be an expert at these things. Um when you do install a UPS battery to your Mac and you go into the energy saver preference plane, you do get a new set of options for the UPS. Yes. Oh, only if you have that little cable plugged in. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's quite a few options um, about, you know, when you shut it down. I, so what I did is I just said after 10 minutes, just shut it down. I mean, if, if we're really out of power, I don't, I just want to safely turn things off. I don't plan to continue computing off the battery. I just want to get things shut down and saved. Um, is that wise or how, how do you handle it? So it depends on on what you have plugged into the power adapter because different things have different draws. So for example, 
they recommend like printers can have very high power draws, particularly laser printers. So a lot of people recommend that you never have your printer plugged into the battery backup portion of the the power, um, the search, uh, the APC, because first off, do you ever really have a printing emergency where you absolutely have to print? And second of all, that will suck up a lot of your power and thus reduce your overall time that you have on the battery backup. So those those are things to be aware of. You know, be mindful of what you have plugged in to the, the power adapter section. Um, the, the, I have my computer and my monitor so that I can at least, because, you, you know, it kind of helps to be able to see what you're doing. Um, and then maybe you want to have your networking equipment, but just your, your essentials are what you want to have plugged in to the battery portion. And so I've got mine set, um, I think, to power off after 10 minutes. Or I think there's another option that says once the the juice and the power adapter reaches below 10% or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You've got, you can shut it off based on the, the battery level of the battery or how much time it computes is left, et cetera. But what I have running off the battery is just the iMac, the Eero router and the, um, the, the, um, USB hub that I have attached to my iMac. So the various hard drives don't just get, you know, the power yanked out of them. Yeah, but are the power are, are the hard drives USB powered? Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes sense then. Um, the the thing that I I do is you know if you're in a situation where you're without power, first off, if you're expecting a storm, like one of the things I do is I go around before a storm and I turn off all my my power adapters anyway, and I unplug stuff from the wall because if you're expecting a power outage, just turn that stuff off anyway. And and save that battery in that APC because that's got a big old honking battery in it, even though it may only power your computer for twenty minutes. It could potentially charge an iPhone or charge an iPad, or run a coffee maker. I've used it to charge a coffee maker. <laughs> Priorities. <laughs> <laughs> or to run a coffee. Yeah. Well, hey, if it's cold out, I get it. It's never. It's not cold, but you know. Priorities. So things to know. Well, I think uh, I think hopefully that chapter in my life is closed now, and I don't have to get more complaints about it. Well, just so you know, the batteries die in them, so you got to replace the batteries every couple of years. Not great. It'll it'll let you know. Don't worry. It'll let you know. OmniFocus will uh, help me out with that. But uh, it wasn't that expensive, and now I have them. So hopefully someday I won't need them. I mean, I hope I hope I never really need them, but I'm now I have them. Okay, it cost me less than one year of online backup storage, so I guess I can't really complain. Uh, John wrote in about home automation uh, with some ideas for switches. I, I think this idea of using switches in lieu of light bulbs, uh, especially if you have other people in your house, is a really good one. Uh, we're going to cover this in a couple of weeks. We've got a guest coming on who professionally sets these up in people's homes and has a lot of experience with this stuff. So we're going to cover that then. But uh, we did hear from you, John, and we're going to add some of that feedback to the show we do with you. I have also been spending a little bit of money uh, getting some various switches from different manufacturers and some more home kit stuff. So when we do that show, I have a lot to share. So uh, so home automation folks, just hang, the, hang in there. We've got some good information heading your way. Oh, I have another hurricane related thing. You know, I'm, I'm just in hurricane mode right now. Okay. Did, it's not coming at you right now. Though, no, right? no, You're not okay. right now. Not right now. No. But um, the last time we had a, a tropical storm thingy come in this way, we, um, I was very fortunate that I never lost power, but we had a lot of high wind issues and the power at my house flickered quite a bit, but it never went out, which again, thank goodness I had that APC and I had all my stuff unplugged. But one of the things that I learned is that when your power flickers, all your hue lights come on. 
<laughs> so be aware of that if you have hue lights in your bedroom and it's 2 a.m. and the power's flickering. Well, the biggest complaint I'm dealing with right now is I'm some of the switches I'm trying are like flush in the wall. They're they're not the traditional rocker. And one of my daughters informed me that she can no longer turn the lights on with her foot, which she is not happy about. So there there you have it. That's my life. <laughs> All right. Um, we heard we heard about um, when you're talking about the must have utilities uh, default folder X. We heard about. I thought we covered this one in that show. Yeah. No, we did. The, I'm sorry. Uh, Robert's talking about. We heard about screen float. Ah, yes, yes. So he says, "I love being able to take these little shots of the screen as he's doing his work. Uh, that's a nice little utility you can have, and it keeps the uh, screen floating on top of other windows, which is always a problem when you're trying to take screenshots." That was just another bit of random feedback, wasn't it? <laughs> I think it got put in the wrong section, but that's all right. All right. Um, we heard from Jim, who was inspired by our Sal Segoyan automation. So. Um, I'm not sure that I endorse Jim's approach, but I mention it nonetheless because it was quite clever. So Jim has hacked together a uh, poor man's security system, or I guess in this case, a poor man's parent monitoring system. Um, Jim writes in to tell us that his mother is um, disabled from a significant stroke. And as a result, someone kind of needs to keep an eye out on her, although she is able to live independently in her home. She's unfortunately quite prone to falling. And so what they were looking was for a way to, you know, be able to check in and, and see, you know, whether she was okay. Um, so he apparently has a, a camera in the house. And so what he does is he has a, a Hazel script that he got somewhere off the internet that was originally designed kind of as a, a do-it-yourself security system. But he put it together so that um, the Hazel script would monitor Dropbox. And if it found a certain file name in a Dropbox folder... It would take three photos from the built-in camera in the computer. Oh, I guess he's just do using this. His mom's got an iMac, so he's using it with their built-in camera. It would take three photos from the camera and save them um, to back to the drop to another Dropbox folder, which Jim also has access to. So this was originally conjured up as basically a, a, a way to identify a potential computer thief, but Jim's using it as a parent monitor. So what it will do is Jim sends off a command to you know, through drafts or through launch bar or something like that to save a file with a specific name in a Dropbox folder, Hazel that is shared with his mom's computer. Hazel then sees that file as a trigger to then rapid fire, take three pictures or maybe not so rapid fire, but to take three successive pictures with the eyesight camera and then save those pictures to a Dropbox folder that Jim can then look at it. He says he calls it his peak action. And he can see that if she's in view of the camera, that he kind of set it up in an area where she, she tends to spend most of her time, um, that she's not fallen and everything is okay. So that's an interesting use. He, he also said that, you know, his mom sometimes has an issue where her phone gets knocked off the hook or she sometimes hits the wrong buttons when she sets the receiver down um, and the, the phone is is not connected. And so he can't call her to say, hey, mom, your phone's off the hook because all, all he gets is a busy signal and she didn't have a cell phone. So what he does is he has another similar action where he, he triggers a different rule that triggers a different uh, text file in, a, in Dropbox that when Hazel sees this, it turns the volume all the way up to max. I guess he's got speakers plugged in. And then the Hazel reads, hey, mom, check your phone. So the computer actually speaks to her, check your phone. 
and then turns the volume back down to a normal level. Yeah, so it's like an Apple script command, probably the say command. The uh, I hope someday they add the um, the speak to Hazel because a lot of people don't figure out that that the Apple script layer, although it's the simplest Apple script you can ever write, you just open an Apple script a dialog in Hazel and say say s a y uh, space open quote then write in whatever you wanted to say. Um, but it would be nice if they made that more accessible for people that aren't you know nerds. So that's two ways that that Jim is using Hazel. I I think those are are pretty smart solutions to it. Um, I I would say that these are both kind of hacky, and um, as long as they're working for them, that's great. But you know, obviously, if you're truly using something to to monitor an elderly or disabled person, you might want to get a more professional service that kind of has backups and redundancies and things like that. But sounds like Jim's got a solution that works for him. And sometimes we said, as we said earlier, sometimes as nerds, we make more work for ourselves. And sometimes as nerds, it's just kind of fun to make more work for ourselves. So I think this one falls in that category. All right. Apple's having a big event in a few days after the show hits the air. So uh, we thought it would be fun to kind of talk about some predictions and thoughts on what's going to happen. We're going to do that just after this. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by the Omni Group, celebrating 25 years of bringing quality software to the Mac, iPad, and iPhone. We are so pleased to have the Omni Group as a sponsor of the Mac Power Users, and both Katie and I want to send our congratulations to the Omni Group on celebrating 25 years. Omnigroup.com started in 1992, and in the intervening years, they brought us some of the best productivity software for the Mac, iPad and iPhone. You may not realize it, but the Omni Group actually started out doing development work for Next computers. That's before Apple bought them and Steve Jobs brought the Next operating system into what became Mac OS X. So in a lot of ways, I feel like you can say the Omni Group's been developing for the Mac since before Mac OS X existed. Over the years, I've spent a lot of time using Omni Group software, and in that time, I've been privileged to occasionally work with some of the Omni Group folks. I am so impressed with these people. Whether they are software engineers, designers, or just the person that answers the phone, the Omni Group is a company singularly determined to deliver superior productivity software. Over the 25 years, they have delivered the goods. We've got OmniFocus, Omni Outliner, Omni Graffle, and Omni Plan. All of these apps are the best in breed for what they do. And if you want to get more productive on your Mac, iPad, or iPhone, you should go check them out. And if you're a user of the Omni Group software, why don't you send them an email or a tweet or, or let them know happy birthday? Because 25 years is a big deal. And I know for a fact those folks at the Omni Group would love to hear from their users. Thanks again, Omni Group, for supporting the Mac Power users and 25 years of bringing us excellent productivity software. It's time, Katie Floyd. It's time for the annual iPhone announcement. Next week, next week, next show, we'll, um, we'll actually record, assuming that I have power, uh, the evening of the Apple event. And we'll be talking, I think, all about what we decide. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the event, but the, the theme for our show is supposed to be iOS 11, right? Yeah, I, I installed the beta very early, and I've been using a lot. I've been collecting notes. I have a lot to say about it. It's a big one. It's a big update for iOS 11. So I think we're going to give that one the whole show, in addition to whatever uh, announcements we hear. But uh, we would not be an Apple geek show if we didn't spend a little time talking about stuff that hasn't happened yet with predictions and thoughts, right? Yeah. So can I tell you one thing that I know is going to happen after the Apple event? 
Uh, my mother has claimed my Apple Watch. I'm so thrilled about this. I'm so excited. Um, we were we. I just said I told her. I said, you know, rumor has it we don't know for sure, but rumor has it that Apple may release a new Apple Watch. And I was thinking about upgrading because I still have the original Apple Watch. And if I did, I asked her. I said, would you be interested in mine? Because I know you were kind of thinking about an Apple Watch, and you know maybe you could try mine out. Well, she looks at me and she looks at my watch and she says, well, "What's it worth?" And I was just planning on giving it to her, and I said, "You know, I I, I don't know, maybe, maybe 150 bucks." She says, "I don't think it's worth 150 bucks. I've been watching them, and you can get them for 199." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "All right, maybe it's worth 75 bucks, but you can just have it if you want it." And she said, "Okay, I'll take it." <laughs> All right. <laughs> I uh, but, okay. But she she wants that um what what is that super leather band? The um the really expensive one? Oh, the Louis Vuitton? No, but, it's No, it's not Louis Vuitton, but um but anyway, the the designer one. She wants that. It's the one I I know it's a name that I never pronounce correctly. That's the one that wraps around twice. Uh, I don't think she wants the wrap around twice one. They make one that's a single that's a little less expensive, but um, you know, the one that's like more expensive than the watch. Well, then she's got to save money on the purchase because that's an expensive band. <laughs> she does. She said, maybe she says, I really like that, but she said, maybe I'll try a, a knockoff one first and, and, and see if I like the watch. I said, okay, you can do that. Well, okay. So we started with watches. Let's talk about watches. I, you know, you never know when Apple's going to upgrade the Apple watch when they first released it. Uh, a lot of us were thinking this would be like a two year product where every two years it got an update and they wouldn't necessarily refresh the hardware every year. But, um, so far we've been getting annual updates last year. They came out with the the Apple Watch updates, which had an increased battery and waterproofing. I actually upgraded last year when they came up with the second edition one. And it was kind of partly my daughter really wanted mine. And partly I wanted a stainless steel one. When the first one came out, I bought the aluminum one. With the second one, I got stainless. And I really like it. Um, I don't feel, as a result, I don't really feel compelled to upgrade. Um, uh, one of the rumors out there is that there's going to be at least one watch that's going to have a cellular radio in it. And that's not beyond... Uh, the realm of possibility. There's some uh, other um, watch um, smart watch makers that already have cellular radios in the watches. So uh, there's a good chance that if you're a runner or somebody who wants to be able to get uh, calls and data without having a phone in your pocket, that you may be very happy next week. By the way, it's the Hermes band. Yes. See, that's the word I can never pronounce correctly. Herme? Hermes? Herme I, I don't know. I thought it was Hermes. Um, but the, after uh, you email me about my power uh, supply, you can email me about how I everybody it. will email me about that. <laughs> um, but just the single tour Hermes band is uh three thirty nine. So, yeah, I'm a little nervous about that. I, I um I didn't see. I'm kind of the opposite of you, David. I didn't think that the series two was enough of a an upgrade justification for me. I you know I don't swim with my watch. I've always had fine battery life with it. I, I'm kind of ready to upgrade to the Series 3, whatever they're going to call it, just because I feel like it's about due. The I, I'm i kind of a mixed bag on the potential for cellular. If it was a little more expensive and a one-time cost, I would probably do it. I am not interested in adding yet another cost to my cellular data plan. I don't think that I would be with my watch but without my phone that often to justify the cost. There were some rumors uh, a while ago that I, I really thought made sense and that I hoped would be the case that, um, you know, kind of like the Kindles have 3G service, 
that you know Apple would would instead of putting in the LTE or the 4G chips in the Apple Watch, they would instead put in a slower and older generation service because the you know the carriers might allow you just to have you know it'd, it'd be give me data you know just be data for small background updates or or those types of things that you know it wasn't designed to have a you know the Apple Watch doesn't really need to transmit a lot of data. Um, I personally would like to see something like that where you have maybe a little slower, a little lower data connection, but you pay for it once and and then you don't have to pay five or ten dollars a month to add it to your plan. I'm just not sure that it's worth that much to me. What I'm really looking forward to, and, and I don't know, is I want a better Siri on the watch. And I don't know if it's the processing power of my Series Zero watch or or what, but I just feel like every time I tap the button to try to talk to Siri or to try to add something to my shopping list or to do something, it feels like 50% of the time I get the response back, you know, there's no connection to Siri when there is, or I get the response back, I, I can't help you right now, I'll tap you when I'm ready. Yeah, I um maybe the Series 2 is better at that because I don't notice that problem nearly as much except when I'm far away from my watch. You know, like I uh, I often use the timer when I'm out gardening and I'll leave the 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 um the phone in the house. And if I try and use Siri, uh, you know, when it's far away, it has problems. But when the phone's in my pocket, Siri works pretty snappy. Um, so maybe that that problem will get solved. Uh, I, I think it really just comes down to what you use. Like, like I said, I said if you're a runner. Uh, a cellular plan would might make total sense for you to have the security of a cellular and data available to you running without having to carry a big heavy phone in your pocket. So uh, it depends where you are. I because I I do spend a lot of time um, in the water and I've taken this wa- this new watch in the Pacific Ocean even and just no problems and it's great. So it depends where you're at, but it sounds like there may be at least an option to get yourself a new watch next week if that's something that you're interested in. Yeah. Well, I have to now. Can we switch over to the phone, though? Because I, I think that is obviously the big thing. That's what keeps the lights on at Apple. And this is going to be a different year for the phone. I mean, we've always had, for the longest time, we had one new iPhone every year. And then starting a few years ago, they added a second new iPhone, a big one to go along with the, I guess we'll say a little one, for lack of a better term, even though I guess you would argue it's not very little anymore. Um this year, there are a ton of rumors, and there was a massive leak out of Apple where they uh, released a, a firmware update for the new um, uh, Apple speaker, which hasn't been released yet, that somehow got into the wild and had a bunch of information in it. So we know a lot more about what's coming than we usually do. And it sounds very, very likely that there's going to be a new high-end iPhone that's going to be something slightly bigger than the small iPhone and smaller than the big iPhone but it's going to have um, like an o, um, an OLED screen in it and probably better lenses for the camera. It's just going to be a high-end iPhone and it's going to cost more. And it's just, it's just going to, you know, it's always been, there's only really one iPhone. Do you want the big one or the little one? Now there's going to be a better one available. And a lot of people are super interested to see how Apple tells the story around this, including me. Yeah, um, I I upgraded... I guess I could say in my cycle last year, because I went from a six to a seven, but we were all kind of expecting last year's phone to be the big upgrade. And I, I won't say that it wasn't a significant upgrade, but it, it, I think we were expecting the phone from this year to be the phone last year. And, and that wasn't the case. And I'm, I'm now kind of at a little crossroads when I upgraded, I didn't do the Apple upgrade program, but I did the same type of program um, with my carrier Verizon. 
just because I don't have an Apple store here in town. And so that would be easier for me to maintain in the long run. So I can upgrade to an iPhone this time around, even though I'm I'm only a year into my contract cycle. It basically requires me to turn in my iPhone 7 and then continue with my payment plan. Although presumably the, the payment plans on the iPhone 8, because their rumors are that the iPhone 8 is going to be quite expensive, you know, will will be a lot more. So I'm I'm I really don't know what to do. I, I think I'm gonna have to judge it based on what are the features of the phone, what are really the compelling reasons to upgrade to the phone, and then, you know, frankly, what is the cost of the phone? I I've enjoyed my iPhone 7, but it hasn't been you know, if I had an iPhone 6S, I probably wouldn't have upgraded. It hasn't been a monumental change for me. You know, getting a better camera is always nice, but I've never been the type of person. I, I don't use my camera that much. You know, I don't have kids. I don't, uh, you know, I, I I don't take that that many pictures with my camera to justify, you know, having this monumental leap in, in camera technology every year. Um, I, I'm really curious to see what Apple does with the camera. I want to back up a little bit, I just for regardless of whichever one we want, I, I, just the idea of it, of, of a kind of like a edition class iPhone is really fascinating to me because Apple has always largely democratized the iPhone. Like everybody, whether you're the president or you're, you know, the, you know, someone who's a broom pusher, if you buy an iPhone, you get the same iPhone. And now they're, they're distinguishing them into classes. And at first I wasn't sure I was comfortable with that. I'm like, well, why don't they just make a great iPhone for everyone instead of the special one that's going to cost more? But there's been a lot of um, stories about this, about uh, about the problem Apple has is the success of the iPhone. Um, they have to make something like 60 million of these things every year in order to meet supply. Uh, so if they want, maybe there's a better screen technology that they can't get 60 million of, you know, they can't get reliably enough screens to make enough iPhones. Or maybe there's a camera lens. It's the same thing. That's a better camera lens, but they're not comfortable putting it into 60 million devices because maybe it's just, it's just not something that you can build at that scale. Um, and when you start thinking about it that way, um, the iPhone, the, the fancy iPhone is going to be kind of the test platform for the stuff they're going to be start using in the, the common iPhone in a year or two, um, it starts to make more sense to me. I, I'm more comfortable with the idea when I think about it that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it, it makes sense. I'm just, I, I struggle with, gosh, do we really need a 15, do I really need a $1,500 phone in my pocket that I replace every year? Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not telling you to buy one. I, I don't, I just think the principle of it is, does it make sense for Apple to make one? Uh, because regardless of whether you or I buy one, there are people out there that are going to want the best in the price. I mean, honestly, I will be very tempted by it if it is if they get up on stage and say, oh, here's a screen that we couldn't we couldn't put in the regular iPhone, but it's significantly better. And now it's in this fancy one uh, for the amount of time I use my phone. If I have to pay an extra two or three hundred bucks to get kind of the the latest and greatest or the, you know, the cutting edge stuff. I would be tempted by it. But and so there, there is a market out there for it. But can you do that without making the old iPhone feel like a piece of junk? I mean, that to me is the, the real interesting part is, you know, Apple is always good at making stuff. They're also good at telling a story around the products that makes everybody feel good. I think one of the elements of this is the name of it. Everybody in the press is calling it the iPhone 8. Like they're going to make an iPhone 7S, um, which is this current iPhone design iterative above, you know, with a new processor and the things like we've been getting every year. And then they're going to have this iPhone eight, which is this new cutting edge, higher one. In my mind, I think it would be a mistake to name it the eight. I think they should keep it the same, 
number, but just give it some kind of additional thing like the the addition that they had on the watch a few years ago, or even maybe the iPhone Pro um, without changing the number. I think the number should match up with the existing one. I wish we would get over numbers altogether. I, I mean, at some point, it just becomes ridiculous. The iPhone 8, the iPhone 9, the iPhone 10, the iPhone 11. Um, can it just be the iPhone it can, except it's a little confusing than when you go to get it repaired or when someone asks you, they're like, well, I have an iPhone I can give you. Well, which iPhone is it? It's the iPhone. Well, what does that mean? You know, uh, like just getting my daughter's six. It's the iPhone with touch bar and two USB ports, parentheses, 2016, <laughs> late 2016. Yeah. Well, well either way, um, I don't know what they're going to name it. I hope that they don't give it like a number eight while they're giving everything else a number seven. But uh, I, I think it's very likely they're going to have this phone. The st- stuff we've been hearing is it's going to have an OLED screen, which is going to give it very good blacks. Um, it's going to be edge-to-edge screen, except for it looks like a sort of chin on the top where the camera is, based on all these leaks we've seen, and uh, that they're going to get rid of the home button. And so it's going to have, instead of Touch ID, it's going to have Face ID. So a whole bunch of new technologies going into it. Um, and it's going to be super fun in a couple days, like I said, ha- having Apple tell us what they've been up to, because I expect this phone has been probably in the works for many years. So I'm, I'm super curious to see what they've done. I, I will tell you that I, I have concerns just about, uh, especially with the loss of a home button. I mean, the home button is iconic to iOS and, and don't get me wrong. I think it's going, I think it's leaving and and I will adapt, but I I look at people who I mean the iPhone and and these Android phones the smartphone has it's it's become a commodity everybody has one in their pockets now, but that doesn't mean that we're necessarily using them well. And I will tell you that um, you know my grandmother made us buy her an iPhone a couple of generations ago, and I don't remember what we started with, but she's now got I want to say a four S maybe a five S I, I have to look at maybe it's a five. Um, but she's a couple generations back on the iPhone. It can still run the current OS. But she struggles with every major iOS update because her phone's changed. And, you know, now what what does it do? And now what are these things? And, um, you know, I know some of my family members who are not as super tech savvy, um, you know, struggle with uh, you know, why why can't I just make it do this? Or why can't I just make it do that? So, you know, these have become very, very complicated c- computers in our hands. And I'm worried with some of the advancements in iOS 11, as well as potentially losing some of the features that have always been there, like the home button. And I realize that probably won't come to every iPhone. It, it's it's going to be a barrier to entry for people. And a lot of people aren't going to get it. I, you know, and they're just going to say, I, I don't know how to use this anymore. I, I don't know how to, I, I can't use this anymore. Yeah. I, I think that one of the smartest things they did with the original iPhone operating system was put a button on it that always takes you to the springboard screen because it, for every user, if you get lost in an app and this happens on PCs all the time where people get lost inside the applications. But with the iPhone, the, the genius was you push the button and then suddenly you're out of that problem and you're back to square one, which for most people is really helpful. Um, with this new phone, if they take that away, they're going to have to come up with something new to solve that. I mean, one of the speculations based on some of the leaks is they're going to have a swipe gesture from the bottom of the screen that, that gives you, in essence, a virtual home button when you swipe up. Uh, we're going to know in a couple of days how this all works. 
Um, but I don't think I, I, you know, this is 10 years since the iPhone's been out. I do think that it's time to keep evolving this stuff and making it even more useful for people. And if getting rid of the home button gets rid of all that space on the bottom of your iPhone, that's not usable screen space. Now, uh, it may be a worthy trade-off, um, but they're not going to do it in a way where they're taking the home button off every iPhone. Uh, they're taking it off this new fancy one. And then it's just going to take some time as people start using it. They're going to get feedback. I, I mean, I think another advantage of the high-end iPhone is it allows them to get feedback from people on some features that may make their way into future phones. And they'll find out where it works and doesn't work. And if everybody loses their mind over the last of the home, loss of the home screen, loss of the home button, uh, maybe they'll rethink where they're going in the future with this stuff. I don't know. Uh, but either way, it, I, I think it's going to be a rare opportunity as Apple watchers to see them tell a story about virtually a new product within their most popular and lucrative product line. And so, you know, they've spent a lot of time thinking about it and testing things. And I, as an Apple watcher, I love to see when they do something like that, because they usually do a pretty good job of showing how thoughtful they were and hopefully uh, they solve the problem. I mean, another one uh, that people are very concerned about is that there's no home button, there's no touch ID and touch ID works great. And uh, all the rumors we're hearing is that it's going to be face ID where you just pick up the phone, it sees your face and it unlocks itself. But you know, um, that may not work as well. And if it doesn't, that'll be a disappointment. But I remember when touch ID came out, everybody says that was going to suck too. And that, that works so good now that people don't even realize it's there half the time. So we're just gonna have to wait and see. We're running low on time, so so let's move on a little bit. Um, I don't think we're going to see the HomePod at this particular event. We've kind of already been told it's going to come later this year. But do you think we'll hear any more about it? I'd like to see some demos of it. Like like when they announced it, they said it was all about audio. But I think the intelligent speaker thing needs to be addressed. Like maybe a few um, Siri examples would be great. And maybe a little bit of an update. But that thing's releasing before Christmas. So uh, and they're going to have a lot of people in there with cameras and that write newspaper articles. So hopefully uh, they'll give us a little bit more information on it. Um, I think we're going to probably get a 4K Apple TV, which is probably overdue. So that'll be great. Um, and that's just a question of whether you have a fancy TV, whether you need that or not. Uh, I'm also excited that this is going to be the first event in the uh, on the new Apple campus. Yeah, I think that will be very exciting. Um, we, I'm sure, we'll get all kinds of process stories after this is released. But I, I'm, I'm curious to see. You know, my understanding is that the Steve Jobs Theater has is a smaller venue than where they typically hold these types of announcements. They typically hold them at Bob Graham or Yerba Buena or those other types of venues. Um, and I, my understanding is the Steve Jobs Theater is a little bit smaller venue. What I was told is is about a thousand seats, which is still a lot of people. It may mean not as many Apple ringers get stuck in the audience <laughs> as they usually have. Yeah, but this is this really sets up Apple for a great home stage advantage because Apple can now, number one, the events are going to be a lot less expensive to put on. Not that that was a huge consideration for Apple, but it, it certainly helps. They can now put on more events a year um, because it's not going to be as much cost, not just from a pure expense, but in, in terms of a time standpoint. You know, they're on their own home turf. They can put these these together now with a lot less notice and maybe they're going to not be so compelled to have only a couple of small events, a couple of big bang up events a year where they, where they only release things a few times a year because they're like, Oh, we got a couple of things to talk about. Let's just call everybody down to the Steve jobs theater and do it. 
Yeah. And, and even, you know, an additional issue is they've always been beholden to the schedules of others when they go off site for one of these things. I mean, maybe the ideal time to do this would be in two weeks and the, but the auditorium's not available. Well, when you own your own auditorium, that makes it really easy. And, uh, I think that's going to be a big help for them as well. Um, having, you know, control of that now. Um, and as far as the, um, the other announcements, you know, it's the it's the watch and the iPhone that I'm looking at. The Apple TV, I'm looking more for software announcements than I am for hardware. I'm, although I do have a 4K TV, I'm, I, I don't know that I take huge advantage of 4K, but you know, I, I think we keep moving the platform forward. The understanding I get is the 4K TVs, um, you don't really see it until you get to a certain screen size, so you need a big TV to really appreciate the 4K anyway. I just, um, and I, I just went to the ophthalmologist today, so I, my eyes have been dilated. So I will tell you, my eyes are not that great anyway. They're, um, they're, they're good, but they're not that great. So I don't know how much I truly appreciate some of this 4K content. But I will tell you, I did just get a 4K TV when I moved into this new house. I had to buy a bigger TV. I don't remember. It's either 60 or 65 inch. I, I think it's a 60 inch TV. I bought a 60 inch 4K TV because I had a bigger wall to put on it. And I figured I might as well get 4K because that's the next new thing. And uh, I, I will tell you, my uh, my first impressions of were uh, the the 4K TV almost looked too real. Like it, it was almost like I was sitting, you know, when I was watching the stuff that was coming down on it, it, it was almost like I was, it, it was... There was there was a nice fakeness of my TV shows that kind of reminded me that they were TV shows, and when I was watching them in 4K, I was like, "There's something that's kind of off about this." I'm like, "I think what's off about it is that it looks a little too real." So, how are you getting 4K content currently into your TV? Is it through your my TiVo will support 4K? Okay, all right, yeah. Well, now Apple TV will too if you're interested. So that'll be cool. I I don't know. I'm excited. I feel like, um, you know, they, first of all, they named it the Steve Jobs Theater. That's great. I mean, it seems like that's the perfect tribute to Steve. And the um, I think they're going to be excited. It's been 10 years since the iPhone came out. And I know Apple's not the kind of company that usually makes a big deal about that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's kind of special. It's been 10 years. Uh, they're bringing in an entirely new category of iPhone, which not necessarily everybody's going to buy. I don't think they intend for everyone to buy it. I don't even think they can make enough if everybody's going to want to buy it. So, uh, but that's going to be kind of giving us a vision. Even if you don't want it, it's going to give you an idea of where they think the future is with the iPhone. And um, I don't know. I, I just feel like Apple is really cracking on all cylinders lately. So uh, hopefully we get some some great new news in the next week and have some fun stuff to talk about next week when we talk about all of the announcements and we can talk about how wrong we got everything, but we can also talk about the iOS 11 stuff, which is a whole new box of candy, whether you're buying any new hardware or not. All right. Well, that's probably going to wrap us up for, for this episode. We look forward to the announcement next week. And David, I hope to be able to talk to you next week. Uh, but until then, I, uh, <laughs> I want to thank our sponsors for this episode, uh, 1Password, Fracture, Gazelle, and the Omni Group. And to say a very special thank you for all of those Relay FM members who either renewed their membership or joined up uh, during our, our Relay anniversary month or, or for who are still doing that. Um, we, we got a note back from uh, Mike and Stephen that there's been a nice uh, boost in uh, renewals and membership. So David and I appreciate that so much. Thank you so much to all of you who support us. Uh, and we will see you all next time. 